Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. This is Emily Carney, and along with Eleanor O'Rangers and Tom Hill, I'd like to welcome you to Space 3D, the podcast that discusses a wealth of space topics. On this episode, we continue our tribute to astronaut Al Warden, whose career is largely defined by his role as command module pilot on Apollo 15. This episode features an interview with Francis French, renowned spaceflight historian and co-author of Al Warden's best-selling 2011 autobiography, Falling to Earth. Without further comment, here's the interview. Today, we're joined by uh, one of the greatest spaceflight authors. He's written and he also co-wrote a a lot of books with uh, Colin Burgess for the Outward Odyssey series that you uh, need to check out. He also co-wrote a book with Al Warden, uh, which was published in 2011. It is called Falling to Earth. It is Al's autobiography. And you all really, if you want to know more about Al Warden, you all really need to go out and just buy it right now. I won't try to spoil it for you too much, but it is amazing. It's probably one of the uh, best space flight uh, autobiographies out there. So without much further comment, thank you, Francis French, for joining us. When did you first meet Al Warden and what really were your first impressions of him? Thanks, Emily. I'm here in San Diego right now. I can actually see out of my window about 10 miles away down on the bay where I first met Al. I can see the hotel. Um, He was in town for a boat show. I had met most of the living Apollo astronauts at that point, but I'd never met Al and was always fascinated by the fact that he had written poetry after he came back from the moon and seemed to be on a slightly different wavelength in the same way that Rusty Schweikert and some of those other guys are. They're not your typical test pilot kind of guys. So um, he was working the boat show. Actually, um, his son-in-law was working on on a really cool boat concept where and I actually went going out that day on the boat with him, and um, it would go. It actually had a hand control that was very much like the Apollo um, thruster control, where you could make the boat go completely sideways, backwards, forwards by firing water jets out the side. I just wanted to go meet the guy, but when I called the boat show, they said, "Oh, what magazine do you work for?" Assuming I was press, and at the time I was writing magazine articles for um, Space Magazine, so I, I thought, "Well, okay." I'll go write an article about this too. So um, sat down with him. The boat show hadn't opened that day yet. He just had all the time in the world for me, which is remarkable because he had a job to do that day and could have quite understandably said, hey, kid, you got 10 minutes. And But nope, he, he did that. He took me out on the boat, like I said, which he didn't have to do because I certainly wasn't going to buy a boat that day. And yet he just wanted me to have a good time. Um, that's how we first met. All right. Well, that, that's really pretty cool. I did, I did not know that. So that was really, uh, really neat. So obviously you worked with Al professionally. I know you uh, have several projects with them. Probably the biggest one that we're all aware of is Falling to Earth, which you co-wrote with him, which was his uh, best-selling autobiography, which is uh, through Smithsonian Books, by the way. So like I said, if you if you haven't read it yet, you, you need to buy it now. Can you kind of let me know how this book came to be? Because I remember, okay, uh, it's kind of legendary, my reactions and impressions of the book. Uh, really, how did it come to be? Because I was always like, why didn't he write something 
like this, you know, years ago. I always wanted to hear his side of the story. Sure. Um, and, and there's a phrase I, I, I almost hate, which is side of the story, because it suggests there are different opinions and there are different takes and somewhere in the middle yeah. is going to be the truth. As uh, Chris Stover, Scott Carpenter, astronaut Scott Carpenter's daughter, drilled into me at one point um, when talking about her very controversial book about her dad, she was saying, you know, there isn't a side to the story. There is what actually happened. And sometimes yeah. it's important to remind people of that. In, you know, in Al's memory, I should say, you know, there's sides to the stories and then there's the truth. And that was what was burning in him for years. The boat show thing I, m I mentioned was 20 years ago. Um, the book that we did was 10 years ago. And his late wife at the time, Jill, had been listening to him for years, talking about how he really wanted to tell what happened and kept saying, as you would to somebody, well, do it then, write it down, get on with it. Stop complaining to me, do it. And uh, he and I had, as I mentioned, I'd interviewed him. Then he, want, he was asked to write something um, for a, a different project and said, would you mind helping me with it? And I said, sure. And I, I looked at a whole bunch of things he had said in the past and basically put them together into a draft for this other project of, you know, this kind of sounds like what Al would say. And he read this thing and he said, my goodness, you've actually, I, I would have thought I'd written this. This sounds exactly like me. And I, it should have done because most of it was stuff he'd said in the past anyway. But apparently the way I put this together, it really impressed him. He really liked the way that um, I captured what he was trying to say. So it became very um, obvious that he and I should write this book. There are many astronauts who've written books and, I hate to say just flying to the moon, but, you know, when people write a book about they go to the moon, they come back, they have a parade, everything was great. It's, it's fascinating to us space people, but, but Al has a whole different thing, as you know. Um, he, he went to the moon, he had the parades, he had the honors, and then he was fired and was told, get out of NASA within the week. You know, most of us get longer than that if we lose a job. Um, he was told, like, yeah, by the end of the week, don't come back, we don't want to see you again. Um, he, he was... It was almost like King Lear, you know, he had his wilderness years having been on top of the, the game. So there was a much more interesting book, and the book was part of his story. He really wanted to tell his life story in a way of, of telling this truth and letting people know what actually happened. Um, your question about why so long, I think because Al's a classy guy, he didn't want to be raising a whole bunch of ruckus for no point, but... Something like a book is very different from just uh, telling people what happened. It's a point where you actually are creating a record. So I think um, he knew it was time to do that. The, the main reason it took so long is because he was having such a full and rich life. The fact that we lost him less than a month ago and he was 88. 88 is a great amount of time to live. And most people, when they pass away and they're almost 90, you think, oh, what a great life. With Al, he was cheated. We were robbed of another couple of decades of Al's life because he was still so busy doing incredible stuff, flying around the world, inspiring engineering students. The guy never stopped. The, the fact he didn't have time to write a book was because he was, at that time, doing the Astronaut Scholarship Foundation, putting kids through incredible engineering projects and raising funds for them. He was an amazing guy, continuing to do stuff. So finding the time, I think, was, was the main key. And that, But you're right, he had a burning drive to uh, to tell this story, and that made it 
very um, much on my shoulders to get this correct. And fortunately, there is a lot of documentation out there. There's a lot of NASA do paperwork. The government does paperwork, and it's all there if you know where to look for it. So it was very easy to, once I knew where it was, to chronicle exactly what happened. Um, And also, he really wanted to tell the story. It's amazing when you work with somebody 40 years after something that happened, and they tell you something while you're sitting there interviewing them, and then you go and read a congressional record, and it's almost word for word. And the guy hasn't read the congressional record for 40 years because it's so burned into his head what happened that he has not forgot a single detail. Wow. So um question I would like to ask you was, you know, what was it like to work with him on Falling to Earth? You know, what was it like to deal with him professionally? And what did you learn anything, you know, other than what came to pass in the book? What did you learn from that experience? Working with ours was a pleasure. I mean, there's, there's a great responsibility. But in terms of the actual craft of the writing, he made it very simple because he's a consummate storyteller. I don't know if you've ever seen... Um, Mel Brooks or the old 50s comedian Sid Caesar, where they just kind of do that, let me tell you kind of thing. And they just, they want to tell a story. And then and Al was, you know, he was so comfortable in a bar surrounded by people saying, let me tell you another story. He was a great storyteller. So sometimes all I had to do is turn on the tape recorder and away we'd go. And the stories came out wonderfully. And then it's a case of jigsaw puzzling it together, doing some meticulous fact checking going back and uh, talking to him again and clarifying some details and points. My main concern was to get that voice. I'm an English guy. At that point, I'm literally half his age. And he's from, you know, Michigan farming background. He's lived a whole other different kind of life than me on the other side of the, the world. And the last thing I wanted to do was be one of those books like you sometimes see with like rock star memoirs where you think this person can't string an intelligible sentence together. And I'm supposed to believe they wrote this book. I don't think they could read this book. I really wanted to make sure it didn't read like somebody picks this up and they go, well, this doesn't sound like Al. It had to be a fireside chat, warm bar kind of story, and yet had to be meticulously accurate. So that was a a difficult middle ground to try and weave. But I think we got there because the people who know Al well, who've known him his entire life were like, yep, this is him exactly him and fortunately he's such a great storyteller a lot of the time i was just getting out of the way and letting him tell the story which is exactly what i wanted to do okay do you have any favorite al anecdotes you would like to share yeah and particularly this month you know because we lost him this month and it's been it's been harrowing for so many of us who knew him well particularly of course his family who you know it's it's a, a devastating thing on a whole different level for his family and it has meant that so many of us who work with him over the years have been swapping stories and my goodness, where they're not going to end ever. There's so many wonderful stories. The, the thing I loved about Al was his warmth, his personal warmth. I, I think that he did not have to bring me into his personal life the way he did because I was working with him on something and I'm very careful to never assume that anybody I'm working with is anything more than friendly. They might be incredibly friendly, but I never assume it's necessarily a friendship because that's we are we are working on something. Al demolished that wall within the first few hours. Um, he was determined to bring me into everything he was doing, and there were things that he never had to do. You know, he was getting a behind-the-scenes tour of the Blue Origins spacecraft where 
there was a pile of non-disclosure forms before you were even allowed in the in the building because of what you were going to see. And they wanted an Apollo astronaut there. They didn't care about me, but he was like, Francis, you're coming on this. You're coming along with me and you're going to see this too. No reason to do that. Probably made things more awkward for him to do that. But that's the kind of guy he was. He would make sure you were included. One thing that's really come to mind in the last um, couple of weeks has been public events such as Space Fest and Astronaut Scholarship Foundation events. Like any fan thing, you get those socially awkward people who, I was one of them as a teenager, who show up and they kind of circle around and this is their beloved subject and they do not have the social skills to begin to engage. It's difficult when you show up to something and it's your lifelong passion and yet you don't feel like you can just go up to somebody and say hello. Al broke that wall down with everybody. Um, I saw him do this so many times where there was somebody who just was nervous to talk to him, maybe wasn't good at that talking to strangers in general, and he just made them feel so welcome. He remembered their name a year later at the next event, made them feel good. I mean, it was, it was really nice to see. It doesn't mean he spent the whole evening chatting with them. There was definitely a, a time limit on everybody, but he made sure everybody felt special, and it wasn't fake. It was, that was what he was there to do. And that's a skill that I don't think I do very well. I know that I don't think I could do it for 40 years as a public figure like he did or 50 years as a public figure like he did. That's, that's an incredible skill that um, I am still in awe of because I get fed up with people within the first five minutes, I'm afraid. I'm, I'm way <laughs> too human. And uh, there are lessons in there for me to ponder for the rest of my life about how to be classy, you know? What I loved about him the most is that if um, you sense he didn't really care for somebody, he was very, like, civil to the person, which is very difficult. Like, in public, you know, he was very civil. He was very he was very elegant about the whole thing, which I was always awed by because I'm like, that's something, you know, I, I need to learn. Oh, he, he, was. He, he was amazing. And, and yet he was also very, very blunt when he needed to be in a way that you couldn't yes. be offended by. There was a time with him and his late wife, Jill, where she was having some health issues, and he just 100% focused his life on her in a way that, again, I, I, I am so in admiration of. Um, we were in a, in a bar in San Diego once at the top of a hotel bar, and um, you could tell he was settling in for the evening. There were, weren't that many of us. It was people he knew well, and he just wanted to sit and chat and have a, a nice evening, and at some point... Jill, his wife, said, you know, I'm feeling a little tired. I'm going to go back to the room, which was probably two minutes away by elevator. Most people at that point would go, okay, go you grab a good sleep, and I'm going to stay here where I am at my most comfortable. But what did Al do? He's like, okay, all right, everybody, good night. We're going to the room. He was focused on her 100%, and it was, you know, it almost brought a tear to my eye. I'm like, my goodness, he, he is going to give her a quality experience for the rest of her life. And he did that. He, he took care of her until she passed away in a way that I'm, I'm still in awe of how well he did that. I mean, there's, so he was blunt when he needed to be with people. If he, if he, he needed to go, he needed to go. Um, but at the same time, he, he was so, as you say, so civil to, and gracious to everybody. Thanks for tuning into our interview with Francis French. Stay tuned for part two of our interview with him. And we thank him for his involvement in our tribute. Stay tuned for more episodes of Memories of Al Warden, and thanks for tuning in to Space 3D.